greetings and welcome to episode 23 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today we have a doozy of a topic. We are going to be talking about one of the most important things that has occurred in the past 500 years of human history, the proximate cause of why the balance of wealth and power in the world today is as it is. That is the Great Divergence. Okay, the Great Divergence has incredible importance for creating the world that we live in today. Okay, you can, if you were to think about your own family history and where you came from, whether you grew up in America and your ancestors were farmers who came from Europe, or if you're Asian American and you're a second generation descendant of someone who came from China at a certain point, your economic status, all sorts of things are determined by the Great Divergence. Okay, now specifically what we're going to be talking about, what are we, what, what, what sort of a divergence has taken place? It's the divergence that takes place between the opposite ends of Eurasia. Okay, um, the Europeans on the far western side and the Chinese on the far eastern side. Most historians would say that on the eve of the Industrial Revolution, that is the late 18th century and most of the 19th century, on the eve of the Industrial Revolution, Western Europe and Eastern Asia were probably, by most economic, political, you know, social, cultural indicators, were probably the most uh, advanced, okay, wealthy and powerful um, of states. You would also throw in parts of the Middle East in there. The Ottoman Empire certainly would be in that category as well. Some historians would probably say the Ottoman Empire would rank higher in many regards than did Western Europe or Europe as a whole at this time period. And what's going to happen over the next 150 years is that the Europeans are going to not just you know, get ahead of the Ottomans and the Chinese, they're going to leapfrog, you know, leaps and bounds, way ahead of everyone else, totally unexpected, and they are going to hold, you know, a disproportionate, a vastly disproportionate amount of the wealth and power on the globe, okay? And this will come as a profound shock to the people who previously regarded themselves as the most powerful, successful, greatest civilizations on the face of the earth, okay? And foremost in this category are the Chinese, okay? It's going to become, it's going to be one of the rudest shocks to any people on the face of the earth when the Chinese realize just how far they've fallen behind the Europeans. Because remember, in the educated Chinese Confucian mind, this was the most, you know, bar none. They, had, they presided over the most successful, glorious, accomplished civilization in the universe, as far as anyone knew. It was the best that had ever existed. Okay? They were the most literate, their cities were the greatest, they had the largest population, they could accumulate the largest amount of wealth, they could build enormous buildings, public works projects, okay, they had the most complex bureaucracy. We've talked about several things like the civil service examination system, you know, 800 years before you see anything else anywhere else in the world, okay, if you take pretty much any factor in trying to measure cultural literacy and civilizational accomplishments and whatnot, the Chinese usually predate every other part of the world. Okay? And they knew it. All right? They knew that they were special. At least the literate elites did, the ones who engaged the written word and served in government and had all the money. And so to fall behind, not just a little bit, 
but so badly that you end up descending into civil war and 150 years of political unrest and humiliation. There's been periods of political disunity and poverty and, you know, civil wars and whatnot in Chinese history many times before, okay? But never before had the educated elites of China felt so roundly humiliated by another people, okay? They might lose battles to the nomads, okay? But until those nomads actually took over China and established their own northern hybrid state, the Chinese looked down upon them as barbarians. They didn't have an inferiority complex towards them. It was quite the opposite. And then when the nomads came in and conquered the Chinese heartland, they would set, set up a northern hybrid state. And although this northern hybrid state would be very different than a southern Han agricultural state, nonetheless, they would adopt many, many elements of the southern agricultural states. And therefore, most educated Chinese would still say, you know, this isn't a radically different people who we feel inferior to, towards. They came to us and merged with our culture and are adapting our culture. Okay? The Europeans are going to be very, very different than the nomads in that regard. Okay? It will feel like a totally separate people who comes in, looks down upon you, exploits you, humiliates you. And not just for a few years. For like a hundred, at least a hundred years. Okay, a very, very long time. Multiple generations are going to experience the shock of the Great Divergence in China. The Great Divergence creates various displacements in so many ways that we take for granted today that we don't even think about. Right? The global languages today, are, you know, English, obviously, is probably the most widely used global language today. Um, if you think about other global languages, you know, you throw almost all the other ones are European. You throw in French, Spanish, Russian, okay? Um, you know, Chinese. Now, in the past 15, 20 years, China has once again managed to assert itself and reverse many of these humiliations and disproportionate imbalances of the Great Divergence. And so now people, you know, always say, oh yeah, Chinese is one of the world languages. And people all over Europe and America are learning Chinese they're hosting Chinese presidents and bending over backward to please Xi Jinping and Hu Jintao and all the Chinese leaders. This is a fairly recent phenomenon. Okay, only in, our, in, in this generation are we starting to see the effects of the Great Divergence gradually reversed, or at least neutralized, by the Chinese. Okay. But in the meantime, English took over the world. Chinese used to be the only language worth learning. That was it. Why would you learn anything else if you knew, you know, whatever the version of Chinese was spoken at the imperial court, and then you learn classical Chinese, that was enough. All right, the Japanese, the Koreans, the Mongols, they learned classical Chinese. The Chinese weren't learning Mongolian or Japanese or Korean. Okay, the most prestigious language was Chinese. That's going to be painfully displaced in the 19th and 20th century. Okay? You think about um, you know, so, so something as simple as clothing. What, what, what style of clothing does everyone wear today? All right, you think of suits and formal wear and casual wear. It's all fashion trends that were set by Euro-Americans, Euro-American societies. 
Okay, if China had come out on top of the Great Divergence, I guarantee Europeans, white people, would be wearing whatever version of fashion evolved from Chinese robes and clothing that they wore in the 19th century. Of course, it wouldn't be exactly the same because fashion changes all the time everywhere, but it would be what evolved out of the Chinese clothing tradition, not what evolved out of the Western clothing tradition. Uh, Hu Jintao is not wearing the robes that the Qianlong Emperor wore 200 years before him. Okay, He's wearing the form of clothing that was created in Europe and America. Okay, that's a power that, that is indicative of the power imbalance that will be created by the great divergence. Okay, the Europeans will set clothing trends, they'll set linguistic trends, cultural trends, the economy, everything. So when did the great divergence truly occur? Okay, well, the Industrial Revolution, historians often will indicate, it starts to initiate some dramatic changes in Western Europe. It's really Northwestern Europe is what we're talking about. Okay, Scandinavian countries, England, you know, parts of what will eventually become Germany, Belgium, and maybe parts of France, although France is somewhat a, a, a latecomer um, in the 19th century. Um, you know, the first changes will be felt in the late 18th century, uh, but really most of it is the 19th century. Now, actual industrialization in Northwestern Europe is one thing. The lag time between industrialization in Europe and when this industrialization begins to show its effects in relations with far-flung distant peoples and civilizations and states on the other end of the globe, that takes even longer. Okay, European influence in East Asia will not be decisively in favor of the Europeans until the really the 1890s. It's actually going to be fairly late. Okay, think about this for a second. The McCartney mission, the famous uh, mission of George McCartney, sent by King George of England in 1793. He goes to Beijing trying to ask the Qianlong Emperor if he can set up a permanent British embassy in the in the the Qing Dynasty capital capital, Beijing. Okay, he's going to China to ask permission to do something. All right, the Chinese aren't going to him. They barely even know what England is or where it's from. Okay, and the Qianlong Emperor famously responds to McCartney by saying, we don't need any of the things that you've brought, your, your gadgets, your devices, the, the things you're offering in trade. Uh, we don't really need it. We have everything we already need. We're self-sufficient. Everyone comes to us. Um, and so we don't feel any need to submit to your request to change the means by which we conduct our foreign relations. We conduct it according to the tribute system in which you acknowledge your inferiority. And that's the way it's going to be. You're not going to set up a permanent embassy. No one gets to set up a permanent embassy here. You're going to come, kowtow on the ground, give us your, you know, your gifts. I'll give you some gifts in return. And then you're going to leave. That's the way it's done. Now, Qianlong emperors, you know, a little bit of bombast and bluster here. China, you know, you know was not as self-sufficient and, you know, you know, completely, you know, not needing to engage other neighboring countries whatsoever. But the essential point still remains. The British came to China, and the Chinese didn't really want them there or need them there, and kicked them out. 
Okay, the British were coming to buy Chinese tea and porcelain, not the other way around. Yes, the Chinese had gone out and sailed around the known world. We talked about the seven voyages of Zheng He in the 15th century under the Ming Dynasty. But eventually, those were regarded as wasteful and unnecessary. There's no need for that. We don't need to be going out throughout the known world and sending our ships all over the place. We're not really getting a whole lot in return. Okay, the center of gravity of the world and civilization and the economy is China. It's the East Asian continental heartland. It's not anywhere else. Let private, private Chinese merchants and ships ply the waters of Southeast Asia and the Indian Ocean. The government doesn't need to get involved. So, for much of the 19th century, really no one in China thought that what the Europeans were doing was so radically different and superior to what the Chinese were doing in their world that it required wholesale change. Right? The Opium War was not a wake-up call to the Chinese. You know, late 1830s, early 1940s, the battles fought in the Opium War in which the British win. In Western history, we often regard that as, oh, it's, you know, the West opening China up to the world, and that was the first indicator that the balance of power had shifted. No, it wasn't. At the time, the Chinese looked at that, and they regarded the British as Mongols of the sea. They're just nomads. They come in, they attack our peripheries, uh, they're superior in warfare, just like the, no the nomads often are, and you can't really decisively beat them. They just go out to, sh to, to, to the ocean on their ships, and then they come back and attack. It's like a mosquito. You can't swat them all. So fine, we'll give them some concessions. We'll give them a, 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 a port where they can land in Shanghai. That's a worthless clump of land. We'll give them some rocks in Hong Kong. That's another worthless piece of land. And they can do their dirty, greedy business down there. Okay. And then every once in a while, gradually over the 19th century, the Chinese started to say, hey, you know what? Some of the things that these Brits and the Frenchmen are showing us, their weapons and whatnot, are actually pretty useful and superior to ours. And they picked and choose. Said, okay, okay, we'll adopt this, we'll adopt that. They're good at technology. The Europeans are clever. But clever is it. That doesn't mean they're better than us. We're still a far superior civilization. Okay. They're clever. Really, for the, from the perspective of the Chinese, it's not until Japan beats them in the War of 1895 and takes both Korea and Taiwan away from the Qing Dynasty, the first real loss of territory, that the alarms truly go off and there is a sense of crisis in the top leadership of the Qing Dynasty. And that's when they say, oh shit, we need to catch up. There has been a great divergence. We're going to get into all that stuff in much greater detail in later episodes. For now, I want to go over the causes, the chief causes of the Great Divergence. And there's a great mnemonic device to remember this. The three C's, the letter C. Coal, colonies, and credit. Coal, colonies, and credit. These are true C's. You got a nice K sound at the beginning. No, no CH ch sound, so it's sort of deceptive. That's not really three C's. It's a different sound, even though it's the same letter. All right. Hard C's, coal, colonies, and credit. Let's begin with where the, why the Europeans came to China and when. And the role, eventually, that coal, colonies, and credit will play. The earliest Europeans who resided permanently 
in China came in the, in, in the 16th century, the 1500s. That's during the Ming Dynasty, the Southern Han agricultural state. All right, the Portuguese arrive in the Straits of Malacca by 1511. They're in Guangzhou by 1520. They bring with them Jesuit missionaries, Christian Jesuit missionaries. And the Chinese look at the Portuguese and the Jesuits and they think these are two totally different types of people. The Portuguese sailors are these rapacious, greedy men who, you know, engage in violence constantly, trying to make a little bit of a profit. And then the Jesuits are these pious, learned, humble scholars who sort of resemble us, the Confucians. And so the Portuguese were resisted and fought, engaged in military battles, and usually easily defeated by the Ming Dynasty over and over again. But the Jesuits were alternately welcomed into the imperial court, and there were actually some famous Jesuits who became painters for Chinese emperors, who became astronomers. They were seen as having some useful, literate knowledge that the Chinese could use. This is often surprising to people to think that, wow, the European presence in China, albeit on a very small individual scale, goes back to the 1500s. Okay. And then as the next century goes on, you get the Spaniards in Manila, you get the Dutch East India Company in what later becomes Indonesia. The Dutch will take Taiwan in 1623. Taiwan is not a part of the Ming Dynasty when the Dutch take it. In fact, Taiwan had never been a part of any mainland Chinese state prior to the Dutch taking over it. That will change eventually. Now, why are the Europeans coming and what is their motive? This is important to understand. The Europeans came all the way to East Asia, not because they were powerful and expansive, but because Europe was fragmented, politically fragmented. Look, look, you should look at a map of Europe in the 16th, 17th century. It's like a quilt, a patchwork quilt complex political arrangements snaking around one over the other, all right, totally unaligned with ethnic or cultural or linguistic boundaries, okay? Europe is a political mess, you know, tens and tens of states and individual polities all competing with one another. It's fragmented, And it's blocked out of overland routes to Eurasia by the Ottoman Empire. Okay, the most lucrative trade for Western Europeans was to get to India somehow. To get to the the Middle East and India somehow. How do you get there? Overland and maritime routes. You can go overland... But you have, for the overland routes, you go through the eastern Mediterranean, and then once you get off the boat, you're in Ottoman lands. You're paying Ottoman tariffs. You're under Ottoman control. That's not that profitable. The Ottomans are, are more powerful. It's a more unified empire. They can defeat the Europeans in battle at this time period, and they're often fighting against various European polities in the 15th and 16th century. Well, if you don't want to go overland, what about... You can go by the sea. Well, the best way to get to India is to go through an Egyptian port, the area that will eventually become the Suez Canal, but there's no canal now. You want to get to the Red Sea. Oh, and then you can go, you know, around the Arabian Peninsula and then across the Arabian Sea to India. But sorry, the Ottomans also have Egypt. So you're passing through Ottoman ports once more. 
no access to the Red Sea without first going through the Ottomans as middleman. So to find a prophet, a lucrative prophet, free of Ottoman control, to get access, open access to the spices of India, you have to leave Europe. And you can't go east through the Ottoman Empire. Okay? So this is why many of the European states that are on, the, you know, on a coastline end up becoming the most adventurous, the most experimental, the ones most willing to risk it all in an overseas venture and send private merchants out into the wider world to look for things like the Northwest Passage. Is there any way to get to India quicker? Because they eventually discover even the maritime routes. If we go west instead of east, good Lord, we have to go all the way around the Horn of Africa. That's a bitch. That doesn't exactly shorten your distance or your expenses. Okay. So the whole goal here is that Europeans are trying to find a more profitable market without another powerful middleman. Okay. This is why many of the first seafaring Europeans were private commercial ventures. They weren't imperial envoys. This is why you have, you know, these joint stock companies like the British East India Company, the Dutch East India Company, because these are risky ventures that are indicative of people taking a big chance on finding India, on getting around the Ottoman Empire. Their strategy is the, the, the Western and Northern Europeans, because that's really what we're talking about here, All right, and you know, also uh, the Mediterranean Europeans, uh, Italians, although they wouldn't think of themselves as Italians then, and the Spaniards and the Portuguese. Okay, They need to find a way to make themselves relevant to a flourishing economy elsewhere in the world that really doesn't need them. Okay, it doesn't need them, and it's operating just fine without European involvement, thank you very much, and you can go on your merry way and leave us alone. When they eventually get to India, they also realize that the Europeans aren't needed, or they aren't welcomed. They already have, you know, well-established trade links with the Persians, with the Arabs, with the Ottomans, eastward towards Southeast Asia. We don't need the Europeans involved in this trade. You're superfluous. You don't really have a whole lot to offer us either. This is why the Europeans were often so aggressive and they got a reputation for being violent and rapacious wherever they went. The Portuguese had a horrible reputation in China when they eventually disembarked in China. Spaniards would get a very horrible reputation for what they would do in Latin America as well. Okay? What the Europeans realized is that there was no profit to be had unless you kick out the native entrepreneurs who are already there and insert yourself as a new middleman. In this sense, the first Europeans to go abroad across the sea, if we think of it in the Chinese context, they're like nomads of the sea. It makes me think of that tuna brand uh, where they call tuna chicken of the sea. <laughs> uh, the, 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 the British, the Portuguese, the Spaniards, the Dutch, they're nomads of the sea. They're aggressive, they're violent, their strategy is to, you know, attack lightning quick, obtain a decisive victory, and then insert themselves as a middleman for various trade ventures. Set up a garrison. Okay, and if they ever have any sort of military setbacks, they can flee into the ocean. And they'll be fine and they'll be safe. Okay, but just like the nomads, occasionally, well, more than occasionally... They'll start off by just wanting to take over one clump of rocks and set up their own garrison. 
and monopolize trade, become a new middleman. And then gradually, slowly, they'll find that they end up taking over entire pre-existing states because they, you know, they're aggressive. That aggressiveness creates military conquests, which create more tax base. And it's usually reluctantly. It's usually reluctantly they get drawn in to broader conflicts and take over more and more tax-paying populations and say, wait a second, we sort of, we're like our own state now. And companies like the British East India Company, the Dutch East India Company, ended up becoming these hybrid states in which it was run by private merchants with investors. And yet they would take over foreign populations that would pay taxes to the state. And you had to start providing state services to them and various other things. And it got very complex. A lot of India was conquered this way by the British. There was no master plan to take over India. The idea was to go in, insert yourself on a, you know, a, a coastal port, take over that, defend it vigorously, dominate trade, and then gradually, inch by inch, they get drawn in and they start realizing, well, now we got to take over this one to protect our our trade link, uh, our trade linkages with our allies in the in the interior in the jungles. So you take over that, and then you get embroiled in other conflicts, and before you know it, you have an enormous chunk of India. And then the Indians don't like the way you're, you're ruling them, they rebel, and then the British crown says, we need to take over this company, you guys are making a mess of things, and then they take over, and voila, there you go. You have a British empire, run by London. So, nomads of the sea, who end up creating their own version of a northern hybrid state, let's say a maritime hybrid state, in this case. So the problem, though, is when these guys eventually get to China, the Portuguese, the Dutch, the British, China has tons of lucrative commodities that they want, but the Europeans have pretty much nothing that China wants or needs. Eventually, the Spanish will, will be able to access, to discover silver in the New World, in the Americas, and they'll use this silver to buy Chinese products. Tea, porcelain, what have you. And then New World silver, via the Spanish, will pour into China. And the Chinese love this. They're getting all kinds of wonderful metallic currencies, valuable precious metals in exchange for their goods. And the Europeans are saying, wait a second, this isn't really, this is, a, this is a, a, the worst trade imbalance, the trade deficit we've ever, we, we, we've ever encountered in the history of the world. All of our wealth is pouring into China, and we're not getting any monetary currency back from them. And so the, the struggle in the 19th century will be the British trying to think of a way that they can profit from all of this silver going into China, but not coming out. And of course, they hit upon opium. Opium grown in India, of, you know, of which they've now conquered a sizable portion. They grow the opium in India ship it to southern Chinese ports, get the Chinese addicted on a drug, and there you go. Suddenly, Chinese silver, or New World silver, is flowing out of China and into European treasuries and coffers. And that is when you start getting your first major concern from the Chinese towards what the Europeans are doing. They manage to turn the tables on the trade deficit with China. And that is when the Opium War will break out. And the Imperial Commissioner Lin Zhixu will be sent down to Guangzhou and dump all the opium into the water and they'll have their own little Boston Tea Party. And then a big war breaks out. Okay. 
So that's why the Europeans are going out into the world. That's the, the, the agenda that they have. All right. It's not a source of strength. Okay. It's motivated largely by a desire to get around the Ottomans and get unfettered access to India. Okay. Now let's get into the three C's. Coal. Coal. What coal will do. Coal is so, so essential to the Industrial Revolution. Without coal, there's no Industrial Revolution. It's just not going to happen, okay? Human civilization just would have kept on going on for thousands and thousands of years, and you never would have had an Industrial Revolution. All right, you have to have coal. What coal does, the magic of coal, is that coal will enable the large-scale use of an inanimate energy source. And this inanimate energy source will allow for an escape from the constraints of the pre-industrial natural world. That's a mouthful. Let me explain what we're talking about. All right, our end goal here, the Industrial Revolution, to get the Industrial Revolution going, you have to be able to create machines that operate without human muscle. All right, that's what you need. And, this, and the way they're going to do that is they're going to create steam-powered engines. How are you going to create steam-powered engines? You need to boil the water. All right, you need to boil water, and then the water turns into steam. The steam, with its own energy and, 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 and um, uh, velocity, will turn various wheels and gadgets without the aid of human muscle. And this will enable the creation of machines, engines, and factories. Okay, and that's the Industrial Revolution. But boiling water, that's the problem. How are you going to boil water in the days before coal? You have to use finite natural resources that are in short supply and don't replenish themselves very easily. Previously, your main source of fuel is going to be, is going to be wood. That comes from forest and trees. They didn't have modern silviculture back then. That's, you know, that's the science of um, uh, managing sustainable forests and making sure you always have enough timber to cut down. They didn't have that back then. They cut down forests whenever they found them. And then the forest was gone, and it never came back. That was a problem. Many places throughout the world that are now, de you know, desolate deserts and backwaters of the world were once flourishing with vegetation and trees. And they cut them all down, and it didn't grow back. Europe did the exact same thing. All right, wood is a finite resource. It's expensive, and you need to use it for other things. You need to build buildings with it. Okay, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a resource that's difficult to renew as your population increases. So coal allows you to move from simply cutting down forests for fuel to using a previously unknown and untapped subterranean resource that really doesn't have any other prior applications like wood does. Okay, now yes, there are other things like water and wind, that were also energy sources, but these are limited. Now, with you know modern technology, after the Industrial Revolution, we can create enormous dams, and the dams will then you know make water a really valuable source of energy. But you need to have the Industrial Revolution take place before you can build those sorts of dams. Okay, and if you don't have coal, the Industrial Revolution never takes place, and you never get to those dams. All right, water and wind were inconsequential as sources of fuel, you know, relatively speaking, in the pre-industrial era. 
But if you can exploit coal, this is like winning the lottery. It takes you out of the pre-modern constraints of the natural world. Coal will allow for limitless conversion of energy beyond human and animal beyond human and animal muscle and beyond the capriciousness of nature. You don't have to rely on nature anymore to create energy and turn wheels and gadgets whenever the hell we want. You burn coal, that burns the water. The steam turns the wheels without muscle. This enables the creation of engines and factories that can operate on their own. Well, in practice, many humans are still involved in their production, but not nearly as many humans as you would need if you had no machines whatsoever. And then these factories will create a cheap excess of products, consumer products, that need new markets. And that's another reason why the Europeans will eventually be trying to break into the Chinese market. We need new markets to peddle our products. They don't really need or want our products, but we need to sell our products. So coal is, you know, by far and away the most important of the three C's. No coal, no industrial revolution, forget it. Where is coal located in Europe and China? This is very important. Okay. In China, right, first of all, we want to think about when we're comparing China and Europe, we need to think about where in China and Europe do you have one of the most advanced, vibrant, and specialized handicraft and technical economies with you know, lots of education and universities and scientific knowledge. There is science in China, absolutely, in the pre-modern world. Don't fool yourself. Science is not a monopoly of, 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 of the Europeans. It'll simply look that way after the Industrial Revolution. I mean, after all, you do have gunpowder and things like this invented in China. Okay. Where is coal located in Europe and China? Well, all the technical, scientific, cultural know-how, all the wealth, all the major transportation networks are in Jiangnan. Jiangnan literally means south of the river. That's the shorthand term often used to refer to the Yangtze River Delta area. The places that will eventually become Shanghai, but in the old days it was more like Suzhou and Yangzhou and all these other cities. All right, We already know after the Great Southern Migration, it's southern China. And that's, where, that's where all the exam degree holders are going to come from. It's going to be you know, the most educated, wealthiest part of China to the point where northern hybrid states are going to have discriminatory quotas against people who grow up in Jiangnan so that they don't all pass the civil service exam and fill the entire bureaucracy with people from Jiangnan, thereby creating you know, a coherent interest group. Emperor is very afraid of that. Okay, so Jiangnan is where ideally you want to have coal if you're going to, you know, accidentally happen upon coal's magical energy-creating processes. Now in Europe, the equivalent of Jiangnan is basically Britain. It's Britain and it's northwestern Europe. Okay, Britain has an enormous number of coal deposits. China, taken as a whole, if you think of the entire boundaries of China, also has a lot of coal. But where is this coal? It really matters where this coal is. In Europe, huge coal deposits are located within, you know, rock-throwing distance of the most literate, advanced, technologically proficient, scientifically experimental places in the entire continent. 
Okay, it's right there. Coal is easy to access in Britain. And that's really important because coal is, is heavy. It's like rice in China. It's expensive to transport. In China, you have the, 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 uh, the rivers, the waterways. Eventually, you can transport rice. But where is coal in China? It's in the Northwest. Only 10% of coal deposits in China will be in the southern and eastern parts of the country. That's Jiangnan. That's where it needs to be. You need to have sufficient amounts of coal in affordable nearby locations to the most technically culturally advanced parts of your country in order to quote-unquote waste it in experiments. Because it's not obvious what coal can do. And it's not just sitting around. you got to find it, and then you got to experiment with it. And it's got to be cheap enough and close enough that you're going to be interested in experimenting with it. But in, in, in Britain, you have huge coal deposits all over. This is a geographical accident that works hugely in Europe and specifically London's favor. Okay. Thus, the ticket to breaking out of the cyclical pre-modern capitalist growth in Europe is plentiful in Britain, but not in China. Okay. Now, today, of course, China has enormous deposits of coal. It always, it always had these deposits. It exploits those deposits of coal extensively. That's one of the main fuel-burning uh, um, uh, 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 sources in China today. Okay, But we need to read backwards and remember how China was able to exploit these coal deposits. Two, three hundred years ago, it wasn't possible. There was no cheap way to get it from northwestern Gansu province in the arid, you know, there's no transportation networks up there. It's all going to be carts and overland. How are you going to get it from there to where it needs to be so you can experiment with it? All right. But of course, once China goes through the Industrial Revolution, very painfully, I might add, in the 20th century, then they have, you know, railroad routes that go all over the country. Then coal will be easy to exploit, and the Chinese will exploit it like no other. And a lot of strategic minerals are in China. I think something like China, you often see statistics, they have like 90 or 95% of all the world's strategic minerals that are used today. Okay? Having them is one thing. Being able to exploit them is quite another. And 200 years ago, Britain was in a position to exploit the most valuable resource you could get for creating the Industrial Revolution. Unbeknownst to the people who did this. Not like there's a you know a premeditated plan in Britain to do this. They stumble upon the uses of coal. And they hit the jackpot. The second C, colonies. Okay, colonies are going to be very, very important. After the Europeans, you know, in tandem with coal, the Europeans also need more raw resources. Okay? Many of the European states are relatively small territory-wise. They don't have enormous natural resources that they can draw upon. The colonies, overseas colonies, will help remedy that situation, but only certain types of colonies. This is a very important distinction. Okay? Outside of China, if you take a boat and you're wandering around the seas of, you know, the uh, eastern China, southern China, southeast Asia, you're not going to bump into any territory unless you get all the way down to Australia. You're not going to bump into any territory that is populated by people who are going to die 
just by breathing your germs. And that's a weird way to put it, but it's actually really important to think of it in that way. In other words, you need lands that can be settled. They can, they, they can, they, they can be transformed into settler colonies. You can't bump in to lands that are densely populated with their own cities and have already built up a germ resistance immunity to the germs that you breathe. Okay, if the Chinese and all their private merchant boats, and there's a lot of them, bump into uh, you know, the island of Borneo, they're not going to find anywhere in Borneo where they can really you know, colonize the land. Right? The Asians, East Asians, migrated all over the place in other parts of East and Southeast Asia. Okay? And there are today Chinese communities all over Southeast Asia. Every single state in Southeast Asia has a major Chinese community. They often migrated hundreds of years ago. But they didn't take over the entire land and colonize it and, you know, eventually constitute 95% of the local population. Is it because the Chinese are more humane and they didn't want to, you know, commit genocide and the Europeans were immoral and, you know, they had no scruples about it? No! Humans are all humans. We're all going to act the same way if given the same conditions. And enough of us, okay? The Europeans had the good fortune... Sometimes they bumped into places like India that were heavily populated and unsuitable for, you know, settler colonization. You don't have enormous, you know, populations of white people from Europe, uh, uh, you know, setting up their own farms and settling down in India forever, permanently. Okay? That doesn't really happen. The people who are in India continue to constitute the overwhelming majority. There's, there's no extra land for Europeans to come in and settle. So they bump into some of those, and those are lucrative if they can take over the existing economic markets. But the Europeans will also bump into places like North and Central and South America and Australia. And these places are, again, like coal, hitting the jackpot from the perspective of the Europeans, obviously not the natives, because what you get in places like the Americas is you get people who do not live in dense, urban, settled communities. There are some, and they, you know, they're, they're people practice agriculture, there are some towns and settlements in the Americas, but nothing like what you see in Eurasia. Nothing like that. Okay. And as a result, these people have not built up disease resistance like, the, like all the Eurasians have, really. If the Chinese had randomly bumped into North America, the natives would have died by, just by breathing the same air that the Chinese breathed out, just like the Europeans. Okay, But the Chinese aren't going to bump into North America because the Pacific Ocean is two or three times wider than the Atlantic Ocean. Okay, And so what ends up happening here is that the Europeans get settler colonies where 9 out of 10 of the natives die without lifting a gun. Yes, there's a lot of violence. Yes, there's a lot of deliberate killing. But 90% of the people of the Americas died from germs. And no one knew why they were dying at the time. Not the Europeans, not the natives. Okay. So in this sense, the Europeans who are leaving Europe and setting out to explore the world from a sense of desperation, 
trying to get around the Ottoman Empire and find a way to India, they have the good fortune to bump in to new lands filled with natural resources that they can exploit. They can bring new settlers over and create their own farms and then tax those settlers and then use that wealth for other parts of the empire. All right, that's an enormous windfall of new resources falling down from the sky, just like coal was. So the Europeans are going to be extremely fortunate to not find the New World populated by disease-resistant natives, and that the Atlantic Ocean is small enough that you can actually bump in to North America by accident, because it was by accident. And the Chinese are going out as well, and they're migrating, they're, they're not, I wouldn't say exploring new lands, but they're bumping in to other lands as well. But these lands are filled with pre-existing dense communities, not suitable for settler colonization. You can't just go in and take away all the resources for your empire. And the, and, and the natives don't die when you shake their hand. They survive. And you got to deal with them. And you have to integrate with them. Okay? So the Europeans, we now have coal. And we now have colonies. The settler colonies. All right, that, these are two you know, enormous caches of resources that simply didn't exist 200 years earlier and now can be exploited, harvested to help you take over other parts of the world that are inhabited by dense, disease-resistant peoples who are able to pick up weapons and fight back. But now you've got a lot of stuff on your side to try and overcome their resistance. Coal colonies, the third sea, credit. A little less important and a little more controversial, but nonetheless, I want to throw this out. At least as food for thought at a minimum. Industrial enterprise, okay, and all these joint stock companies going around the world are prohibitively expensive. You need investment capital and you need many willing investors. Cheap credit is what the Europeans will be able to create just a couple hundred years after they start, within a couple hundred years, within within a hundred years or so of the first Spanish and Portuguese explorations of the rest of the world over the sea. Cheap credit will sustain the feedback loop of European exploitation of natural resources through technology and markets. Historically, credit was never cheap or easy to get. In fact, credit was extremely difficult for most people to get. Credit represents someone who's going to give you money, invest in you, so you can invest in something else in hopes, in expectation that you will succeed in this venture and bring back enough profits both to make it worth your while and the person who invested in you. That's a lot of confidence and optimism. Okay, credit essentially represents trust in the future and the willingness to finance the work of today with tomorrow's theoretical money. For most of human history, however, the prevalent belief, peddled by pretty much every single religion, was that the best days were behind us, that was the golden age, and that tomorrow or any point in the future is either going to be the same as today or worse. Credit requires a transformation, cheap credit, not just any credit, cheap credit, which is what you need to have here. Cheap credit requires a transformation in these views of the future. And coal, colonies, and the profits that are facilitated by by this coal and colonies are going to be crucial to that transformation in credit. 
in the in, in the the views of the future. The institutional embodiment of this are the East India companies, the Dutch East India Company, British East India Company, etc. These are all joint stock companies that operate on credit that is made possible by an investor trust in future production increases. Why do they have that trust? Because of coal and colonies. Because we found a magnificent land where the natives are dying off in droves, and we can just walk in and essentially start to exploit the natural resources of this area. Of course we're going to turn a profit. Please invest in us. The cost of credit then goes down when time and time again, the investors realize this is, you know, a done deal. There's no way this can fail. If there's no new profit in, the, in these new markets, the investment dries up. So even when you're not talking about settler colonies like the Americas, and you're talking about places like Europe and China, the Europeans who are operating on credit and, and, and have to answer to investors are still going to be particularly aggressive. Because they need to make sure they turn that profit. And so they're going to be rapacious. They're going to go in and they're going to make sure that they win the next battle like the nomads of the seas. They're going to pick fights like the Opium War. The Opium War was about the British saying, we want free trade with China. (laughs) Free trade in quotation marks. There's no such thing as free trade. Whoever says they want free trade means we want trade operating um, on the principle. we We want trade that operates in a situation in which we know we have more economic and political clout than you, and we're going to win in the end. (laughs) Okay, but we're going to call it free trade. The British are forcing a product of colonial India, opium, on Chinese markets, and the Chinese are addicted, and the British know it. And so they say, oh, free trade, free trade, free trade, knowing that they have the upper hand in this trade. This leads to a vicious cycle. Coal and colonies allowed the Europeans to become so powerful through no virtue of their own. It's not like there's anything in, you know, in the European spirit or culture or you know, white men genes or anything like that. That's, that's insane. That made the Europeans benefit from the Great Divergence. It's a bunch of historical accidents. Okay? And now everyone, once they realize how powerful Western Europe has become, they all want to catch up. But they need cheap credit and able to catch up. They want to do what the Europeans are doing, going out, getting their own settler colonies, creating their own factories. They need cheap credit for this. And cheap credit is now controlled by the Europeans. And they'll lend it to you. They'll lend it to your government at a high interest rate. It's not cheap anymore. They'll lend you expensive credit. And then when you can't pay pay back the loan, they're going to get involved in your domestic affairs. They're going to take over the Suez Canal like they'll do in Egypt. They're going to take over the Panama Canal, all these things. It'll be a pretext to intervene in your government domestic affairs. And that's going to create colonialism in so many parts of the world. Someone asks for a uh, a cheap loan. They get an expensive loan. They can't pay it back for whatever reason. And the Europeans insert themselves into your polity in order to make sure they get their money back. Now, this European credit-driven world will also attack cultural norms. We should all be familiar with this. The new capitalist world order that results from coal colonies and credit depends on creating new individual consumers constantly. How do you create new individual consumers who are going to buy shit they don't need? By selling a product 
that confirms that individual consumer's uniqueness. You have to speak to individual people. It's not enough to sell something to a family. You need to want your your ultimate goal is to sell it to each member of that family. And the only way you're going to convince them that you should have four four of, you know, the same product rather than one is by saying each one of you is unique and you deserve. You need this product to confirm your uniqueness. This Western individualism will attack all previous collective identities that the pre-modern world had, both in Europe and, 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 and elsewhere. The family, the village, whatever it was. The church. Okay, and it replaces these things with the state and the market, which now offer the lost functions of the family, the village, the church. Pensions, education, health. That's going to be a free market or a government-mandated market for these things. And so what you'll get, the result will be the valorization of things like, you know, free marriage, individual choice. Arranged marriage was the way it was always done in the past. All right, free marriage is a radically new concept. And many people who, you know, were supporters of the old order will say this is very selfish and stupid to be doing a free marriage. Capitalism needs to create individual unique consumers who all believe that you are unique from every other person on the face of this earth, however, and your individual choices, only you know what you truly want, and we will pander to that by selling you a product or selling you, uh, you know, what you think you need in a wedding. All right, so free individual choice, free individual career choice, individual destinies will be exalted over collective destinies. And in order to support these individual destinies, you'll need an array of products that confirm its worth, its direction, its meaning. The result will be the erosion of the entire pre-modern world order and cultural meaning that people once had. I'm not here to condemn this or be a moralist or whatnot. It is what it is. Human societies evolve and change. And there was a whole lot of horrible shit that occurred in the old days that would have made your life miserable, all right? Even if you didn't have to deal with modern individual consumerism and all the you know moral quandaries and loss of meaning that, that it brings, uh, there's pl- pros and cons to both eras. Let's just leave it at that, okay? But it's important to be aware of that that is one of the major changes that will occur as a result of the Great Divergence. However... We have diverged now in going so far beyond the Great Divergence. We've explained why China fell behind Europe. Later, we will also explain in a future episode why China also fell behind Japan, which also fell behind Europe as well. For now, however, we need to cover, well, for the next time at least, we need to cover the establishment of the most successful dynasty in Chinese history, founded by the semi-nomadic Manchu peoples, the last of the great northern hybrid states. A dynasty so successful that it would have been impossible to imagine it in the debased state as the sick man of Asia just a mere century after it reached its furthest territorial limits and conquests in the 18th century. I am speaking of the Qing dynasty. Please join me next time when we discuss who were the Manchus. (laughs) 